So uh, we are going to have some time um, looking at the account of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Um, there is so much which I could have said about this, and actually the labour over the last couple of weeks has been trying to discern what not to say. So count yourselves lucky, because uh, I managed to whittle it down. Um, what I'm confident of, though, is that we are going to hear a little bit about the enemy and how he works, but uh, God's heart for us today is to concentrate and focus on the person of Jesus, because uh, we want to be like Jesus, don't we? So what better way than to meditate on who he is and how he handles things? Um, so we're going to be stopping off, we're going to read the passage, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about temptation, we're going to stop off in Eden for a little short trip, and then we're going to end up with Jesus in the wilderness. So let's read our passage together, it's Matthew 4, uh, if you don't have a Bible there are loads at the back if you want to help yourself. Matthew 4 verse 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So, other than wondering how on earth I was going to fit this into just under half an hour, the overwhelming thought I had when I read this this week was, which Jesus do we have in our minds when we read this passage? Is he being Jesus, the Son of God, or is he being Jesus, the human man? Maybe we read him as Jesus, the human being, when we're thinking about him being hungry or hot or exposed to the cold at night. But over the course of reading the passage, he sort of transforms in our heads to Jesus, the Son of God, because how else would he so easily be able to do and say the right thing in the face of such, such temptation, right? Uh, so do we forget sometimes that Jesus is not half man, half God? He is both fully man and fully God all at once. So he wasn't human when he was hungry, but God, when he was resisting the tempter's offer of food, he was both human and God throughout. His absolute hunger was real in a physical sense, but so was his absolute oneness with the Father. When he resisted the enemy's schemes, he was still human, 
but his oneness with God surpassed any of his human suffering. His communion with the Father would more than satisfy his hunger. His spiritual feeding was enough. So as we think a little bit more about what Jesus can teach us uh, in this passage, I want us to remember that Jesus knew what it was like to be a human. He lived it and he experienced it in all of its fullness. Um, we have a God who doesn't implore us to be like him from some lofty grandeur. He walked our walk and his feet got dirty. So, it sounds obvious, but why does the enemy tempt? What is his agenda? His agenda, of course, has been the same since he first appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden. His agenda has run parallel to the story of humankind ever since. He wants to destroy the relationship between God and his children. And he wants to de-glorify God and glorify himself. And I said this morning, I don't know if de-glorify is a word, but it should be. So <laughs> I've made it so. Um, and we know that the enemy is going to use all kinds of complex deceptions and smoke and mirrors to kind of get the job done. But his objective is really simple, to get us to turn our hearts away from Yahweh. So let's get ourselves clear then on what exactly temptation is, because I think these days the word temptation has a sort of modern day connotation to it, which isn't quite accurate. It's kind of a playful way, isn't it, to describe something we ought to not give into, something in front of us which we should resist, like another cake or another episode of a show that we're watching when we're already really tired and it's late and we've got to get up for work, or the temptation to not go out for the run that we probably know we should. And those things are probably not great for us and we could do without them, or with them in the case of the run. Um, but that is a watered-down version of what temptation is, and it doesn't just come anywhere close to the kind of temptation the enemy is really interested in. Here's one for you, Matt. Because the Greek word <laughs> uh, for tempt or temptation is pirazzo or pirasmos, and it means to make an attempt to prove, to try whether a thing can be done, to test. So a temptation then is the opportunity seized by the enemy to test a person's faith in Yahweh. It's an attempt to manipulate a person into making the choice to be unfaithful to God. I'll be presented with circumstances which will tempt me to either serve myself or serve God. A choice to satisfy myself or satisfy God. Glorify myself or glorify God. Obey myself or obey my God. But remember... The enemy doesn't have the power to force me to make that choice. He's not that powerful. He can put the temptation in front of me, but I make the choice about who I serve and who I obey. Uh, and so we need to kind of also think that the, tem the tempter, the enemy, whatever you want to call him, will dress up a temptation to look anything like a temptation. And we're going to look at that in a bit. Because we know that in John 8, it says that he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And in 1 Peter, it says that he prowls around like a lion. 
we have to be alert because the enemy deceives and he traps. And if we go around blindfolded, he's going to lay traps and we're not going to be able to see them. But we have Jesus to look to. For hope, for inspiration, we have the Spirit of God as our strength. He is our anchor in our power in all things. Yay. The deeper our communion with God then, the more rooted we are in Jesus, the more easily we're going to be able to resist the schemes of the devil. And the Spirit will give us the eyes to discern which circumstances in my life the tempter is going to manipulate or use to get me to disobey God. Whatever that might look like, because to be unfaithful to God can look like many different things. It might be that I resist him, that I choose not to trust him, that I remain angry at him. I don't think we can go any further into the wilderness without having a stop off at Eden, because... Um, the enemy might go by lots of different names and lots of different disguises. He may use different tricks and different deceptions, but his agenda has always been the same, whether he's talking to Eve, to Jesus, or to you or to me. So we're going to read Genesis 3, verse 1 to 7, and we're going to have a quick reminder of how the enemy goes about things. So Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. I love to study psychology. Um, I joked this morning that I've got you all figured out, but I was joking. Um, I love to think about uh, how, why people do the things that they do, how their experiences have shaped the way that they think and their perception of the world, um, and how they then make choices based on those thoughts. And how we think and our perception of the world can hugely influence who we think God is. The enemy will use the way we think to try and achieve his purposes. And he started with Eve. She and Adam were perfectly content, living in absolute trust in the order of life in Eden. God was God, Eve was Eve, Adam was Adam. Uh, they were blissfully naked. It was good. Um, and then the serpent comes along and by asking a single question, tries to plant a seed of doubt, attempting to throw the everything that Eve and God had into question in Eve's mind. Did God really say that, Eve? He tries to get her to think differently. And he, attempt, he tempted to make her question her understanding of God and her need for him. 
all with a single small question, which I think he was hoping would open up a choice which previously she didn't think she had to make. She, well, I think he was trying to entice her down a path of doubt and he dressed it up as independent thought or self-discovery or enlightened revelation, whatever it was. With that first single question, I think he thought he was hoping that she would do the rest of his work for him by then starting to think things like, am I really happy with the order of things here? Did I misunderstand God? Is this how things should be? Could they be better? But at this point, Eve didn't give in to the temptation, uh, albeit she didn't sound that emphatic in her reply either. I would have liked a bit more enthusiasm on Eve. Uh, but she responds by correcting the serpent and she quotes God's actual words about which trees he said they could eat from. She tries, she gets so close to choosing obedience to God. And so the enemy, sensing this, decides to go in for the kill. If more subtle methods were not going to work, he'll just come straight out and accuse God of being a liar. You will certainly not die, he said. He is the accuser. And he will tell lies, and he will tell lies about telling lies. And sometimes the enemy will be underhanded and sly, and his lies will be whispers, and other times he will be blatant in his deception, and he'll be loud. He will point to God, and he will tell lies about his character, about who he is and what he's about. And he will use the way we think to tempt us into doubt and then disobedience to God. And he'll use those lies as kind of false evidence. Remember, his single objective is to get us to cut ties with the one true God. That's what he ultimately succeeded in doing Eden, which of course then became humanity's downfall. But Jesus sealed our deliverance. Eve's encounter with the tempter plunged human beings into sin and independence from God. But when the same tempter attempted to pull Jesus away from obedience to the Father, Jesus demonstrated how he was the one who would ultimately overcome that sin and bring us back. So, to the wilderness. Um, I was really struck by... The stillness of Jesus here. Um, it's my theme of the month. Such shalom. <laughs> um, absolute oneness with and devotion to the Father. Jesus is unshakable, isn't he? 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he was hungry. His obedience to the Father was so complete that he was miraculously still going after 40 days. That's what carried him through. But he was hungry. His physical body was suffering because he was human, and human bodies suffer when they haven't been fed. They start to shut down. Uh, another topic that I really love, probably my favorite topic, is the brain and how it works. Um, and I get to learn about a lot of it through my work and through a course that I'm studying. And so I have lots of access to books about the brain and medical journals, none of which I understand. In fact, I told the story this morning about how I was in a lecture on Thursday and was referencing a scientific graph only to realize halfway through that I've been reading it upside down. Um, and then turned it around, imagining it all to become clear to me, still don't make any sense. So um, I pleaded for prayer this morning, and I'll repeat that now. Um, 
So, uh, I read a lot about the brain, and I was reading how the brain uh, actually shrinks in volume in extreme hunger. So, your prefrontal cortex, which is the front bit that sits um, in your brain, the front section, it really diminishes in its ability to work properly when you're really hungry. Your prefrontal cortex is responsible for what neurologists call executive functioning, which are things like making plans, thinking ahead, thinking rationally. Uh, it also regulates and keeps in check your emotions. Uh, your emotions are made in another part of your brain called the limbic system, which sits right in the middle. You probably know more about this than me. I'm sounding like I know what I'm talking about. I don't. But the prefrontal cortex, uh, when starved of food, struggles also to comply with social expectations. It struggles to be keep you polite. Um, and it really struggles in its ability to concentrate or perform tasks, which is why you feel the way that you do when you're hungry. It's your brain's way of slowing down some areas of your brain so that other areas of your brain that keep you alive can have more glucose and all the rest of it. So his brain was quite possibly shrunk in size. Um, and it was also really hot. Um, and the Judean wilderness probably wasn't awash with comfortable places to lie down or sit. Um, humanly speaking, Jesus was alone too. His mind was no doubt full with all that lay ahead for him as he stood at the brink of his earthly ministry. I don't know what Jesus was thinking and I don't know how he was feeling, but I do believe he would have been acutely aware of the significance of his time in the wilderness. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And so on one level, the enemy's test was about tempting Jesus to satisfy his human desire for food, um, turn these stones to bread, his human desire to be saved from suffering, throw yourself down and the angels will catch you, and his human desire to matter, all this I'll give to you. Because it's our humanity that's the door by which the tempter will enter. He appeals to our basic human desires on the assumption that we'll serve whoever or whatever satisfies them. It didn't work with Jesus, but it sometimes works with us because... How easily, amongst the human community, does hunger, once assuaged, turn into greed, where we only look inwardly rather than outwardly? How quickly does our lament and mourning over our suffering turn into anger and hard-heartedness? How easily do we start to see suffering as evidence that God isn't good, isn't powerful, or isn't present? And how far will I go to feel like I matter? If I don't take it to the right place, to the foot of the cross, how easily will my desire to be loved and to be known turn into trying to satisfy my egocentric desires at any cost? I don't think there's a single person amongst us who hasn't been prone to that stuff in one way or another at some time or another. We are so broken. <laughs> But then there is Jesus. By walking amongst us, he saw and lived our brokenness. And in the wilderness, he embodied the truth, which is that we can only be satisfied by and in and through our living God, our creator. No one or nothing else. Is that bad grammar? No one or nothing else? Anyway. Um, 
We are so much more than our physical needs. So much more. Of course, what the enemy really wanted in the wilderness was to use Jesus' humanity to derail or disprove his identity as the coming Christ. If you are the son of God, he says. Testing Jesus was the boldest, most audacious thing the enemy could do. And in his mind, there was huge potential in coming up against Jesus. He was attempting to test the Messiah the true Christ. And this test in the wilderness was a defining moment in Jesus' time on earth, but not because Jesus was ever at risk of giving in to the enemy's temptations. The enemy was never a worthy opponent to Jesus because Jesus was never going to obey any voice other than his father's. He's the Christ. The enemy was relying on the fact that Jesus couldn't possibly remain faithful to his heavenly father under the weight of such suffering and deprivation, but he wildly underestimated Jesus. The enemy couldn't comprehend that Jesus's relationship with and obedience to the father was enough, and he mistook his humility for weakness. But simple humility and obedience to the Father were Jesus' most powerful weapons. Look at how he responded to the tempter each time. And I would love to unpack that a bit more, but we don't have time. But his, his replies alone are worthy of so much of our time. But every response was with what? With the word of God with simple, absolute truth. He didn't engage in an explanation or a dialogue. He didn't feel the need to un get the enemy to understand where he was coming from. He just responded with the word of God, with absolute truth. And the simplicity of Jesus' response in the wilderness tells us so much about the person of Jesus and who we're also aiming to become. And that is obedient. Obedience is about making a choice. We choose who we are going to be faithful to. It won't just happen and we can't rely on our feelings because if you're anything like me, I feel 800 things a day and none of them are to be relied upon. I have to decide whose voice I'm going to listen to, mine or the Lord's. And let's not mistake obedience for willpower. Willpower is about what I am able to achieve in my own strength and on my own. It's trying by our own efforts to think differently. You've only got to think of a time where you have tried to resist something which you know you would like to give into, but you kind of don't want to. It's really difficult. If I'm trying to not eat donuts, I don't know why I keep talking about donuts. Um, if I'm trying not to eat something, it's really difficult in my own strength to try and battle that, to fight against it. That's because I'm relying on my own strength. The more rooted in the presence and the word of the Lord, the easier it is, though, to actually choose him. Neurology proves this as well. So the more I think about something, every time I think a thought, uh, two neurons in my brain fire together. 
The more I think that thing, the stronger that link between those two neurons gets. And so the more I think it, the stronger the link between those things. And so more, how, more easily I am able to think that thought. Physically, my brain changes when I think something over and over again. And likewise, when I don't think about something, those neuron, neuronal pathways fall away and they break and they die. The more I think and immerse myself in the word of the Lord, the stronger my brain actually gets. <laughs> Whatever I think about the most will become my day-to-day -day reality. I will serve what I value the most. And it says in Luke, doesn't it? Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart are. Willpower puts trust in me. Obedience trusts God. Absolute obedience to the Father comes from absolute oneness with the Father. It flows from connecting ourselves to the one true God. And obedience is our response out of reverence and out of knowledge of who God is. He is the only one worthy of my obedience. But I do have the freedom to choose. And freedom is not about being able to say or do what I want whenever I want. That's not freedom. I think that is being unaccounted for. And I don't want to be unaccounted for. I want to belong, to be chosen and cared for, to be part of a bigger story, to know that no matter my mistakes or my wrongs, I am still chosen. I am still invited into the family of God. That's why I want to choose to be obedient. Because I know also that no matter how pleasing or how seemingly easier the other option is, I want to trust God that only he can satisfy. And I choose to obey because he deserves my obedience. We're going to finish on this final thought, which um, we're going to look at. So Matthew 4 verse 1 says... Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God directed Jesus into the wilderness. It was no accident that he ended up there. He wasn't led there by the devil. He didn't take himself there. Jesus was obeying the will of the Father no matter where it might take him. The Spirit led him into the wilderness and sent his angels to care for him on his way out. He was taken there on purpose. It was all part of God's plan. And there are whole other sermons written by people far more gifted than me and how God might use the Satan's schemes to further his plans and how suffering is sometimes part of God's way for us. What I will say, though, is I know the enemy does not have the power. When Jesus met the tempter in the wilderness, it was part of God's plan, not the enemy's. Jesus' wilderness testing was essential to proving to the world that this was the Son of God, the coming Christ, who, though a man, was proven to be perfect. And when the enemy is resisted, he flees. Jesus proved that Yahweh is greater, more powerful, more worthy of my devotion than anyone or anything in the world. 
Anything that the world or the enemy has to offer pales into insignificance. By coming as a man, Jesus proved that there is no human need greater than the need for a saving God. And Jesus endured the wilderness so that he might fulfill God's ultimate plan. All things come under Yahweh's plan and Yahweh's reign, including the enemy.